And now, coming to you live from the Gershon Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Shran and Gary K. Wolf, deeply convinced that nobody else gives a shit, on the Coot Street Podcast! Well, let's be clear about whether or not people actually care about this. This is, depending on how you count, and keeping in mind that we're the only ones counting, this is podcast number 500. Yes. It is, it is certainly episode number 500. Episode uh, I number actually, I actually think there's probably 20 or 30 kicking around that aren't officials. There are Coot Street round tables and other odds and sods and bits and pieces. But yes, this is episode official 500, brought to you in a year when we thought we might have got to episode 380 if we were lucky. Well, this is partly because an idea, which everybody asks me about this when I do these little short podcasts of, of the 10-minute podcasts that are never less than 15 or 20 minutes, uh, an idea which I give you full credit for, uh, and the sense that I have is that the people on those podcasts are uh, thinking of themselves as guests on the Cood Street podcast, and indeed they are, and indeed they've added a lot of value to it this year. Um, I do have one question, because I was thinking about this. Uh, of all the 100, probably 120 or so of the, of the short podcasts, and we ask everybody what they're reading, and uh, uh, I'm fascinated by that. I'm so fascinated by it now that when I call new people up, they're fascinated by it, and they have a list of <laughs> books. What are the are you, are you finding any patterns as to what people read? What these strange science fiction and fantasy writers and editors and publishers tend to prefer? Because I have two titles that have come up again and again. Well, first of all, in terms of trends, nonfiction, history, and crime come up a lot. Yeah, they do. In terms of books that come up a lot, uh, in fact, major books of the moment are part of it. So things like the Hilary Mantel book, the latest one, that comes mm -hmm. up repeatedly. Yes. Uh, depending on, in fact, I, I would bet if you were to split it by demographic, depending on the age of the person you're talking to, hot current science fiction comes up. So, for example, the Murderbot Diaries come up quite a lot. Uh, the Martha Wells okay, series. Just, to, just not not to interrupt, but you have just listed the two titles that I had in mind. They've come up again and again. People love Martha Wells's Murderbot Diaries. Now, my question and, is: If you were to go back, does that break down generationally? I don't really. I've not really thought about it. Um, I'm guessing that possibly. Um, a slightly older demographic is reading the Hilary Mantel novels. Um, I think that could be true. Well, part of the reason is you have to be old enough to have read the first two, and it's been like 10 years or so. so. <laughs> well, this is because I, I have come to deeply believe in what I call the reverse golden age. Mm -hmm. I've called it the reverse golden age for about five seconds now, but I'm warming to it, right? <clears throat> and the reverse golden age is where Old people think young people should read the golden age, but young people are actually younger people are actually reading the current stuff and think that the older people should read that. Well, they're both right if you rephrase the question away from should be reading. Okay, but should be is really not the uh, active part of the observation. It's actually a perspective thing. Uh, generally, what I've observed is that the long, the older you are, I don't know if it's, no, no, that's the longer your mm. your writing career is, but the older you are, the particularly as writers, your people tend to drift away from reading in the field and read outside it more and more, whether it be nonfiction or whatever. And people who are earlier in their careers 
are reading their contemporaries, not exclusively, none of this is as simplistic as that, but there's a tendency to read current science fiction, the stuff that's happening around them and immediately before, which is perfectly natural, but is also, if you like, part of the core of this uh, friction about the value of older fiction. Well, I think uh, certainly uh, a lot of the younger uh, writers I've talked to are actively reading um, books by friends. They're reading books mm-hmm. in their in their writers group. They're reading manuscripts. There 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 is a community there which is distinct from uh, an older community where people tend maybe I don't know if they do less of that sort of thing or not. Um, my my approach to it is that the real issue is I, I don't really want to get back into another uh, question of canon, but it occurs to me that one of the issues here is not uh, the question of what you need to read or, or, or what the canon is. It, it finally occurred to me, and it occurred to me during um, one of these short podcasts, that when people ask me or ask you, uh, what should I read? I don't know much about science fiction. What should I read? And then uh, depending on who they're asking, they're going to get an older group saying, well, you need to read Heinlein and Asimov. You're going to get a, a, nung, a younger group saying, well, you need to read Martha Wells and Tamsin Muir. The, that's not the question is. The question is not um, what I need to read because of the books. The question is, what do I need, what should I read in order to be literate in contemporary science fiction? There's a difference between canon and uh, what, uh, the guy named Edie Hirsch, who was an education professor and a literary critic, wrote a book 20 years ago called Cultural Literacy, uh, which is kind of an elitist book. It's kind of an approach to, this is stuff you need to know to survive in the 20th century. You need to know if you're in North America, what NAFTA is, for example. I think the question that people really ask is, what do I need to know in order to understand contemporary science fiction, which isn't necessarily a list of works. Huh. See, that's not the way I thought you were going to phrase that question. I thought the way you were going to phrase that question is, what do I need to read, to the extent that reading is the, the active thing to do? What do I need to read to be culturally literate in science fiction? Well, in a way it is, but it's not a particular work. In other words, what, what is the kind of the, the grammar of contemporary science fiction? Let's take uh, a kind of classic um, uh, idea that's, uh, because it keeps coming back, the Generation Starship. Being literate about that concept is important to read a lot of con- current science fiction. What do you need to know that's derived from space operas that will enable you to enjoy The Expanse or, uh, or, or Elliot... Uh, de Baudard's Zuya universe. Um, in other words, what are the concepts that define modern science fiction? Not this, and, and you can pick up those concepts from any number of works, by which I sure. mean, I go back to the Generation Starship. You can read, um, oh, I don't know, um, Molly Gloss's The Dazzle of Day or River Solomon, um, uh, The Unkindness. An Unkindness of Ghosts? An Unkindness of Ghosts. That could be the first generation book you ever read but that book will teach you all you really need to know about the concept and that opens up all the other generation starship in other words what are entry books what what concepts not books but what concepts do you need and if you get into those concepts you talk about uh the 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 uh, various logical permutations of time travel of course you can go back and read a kind of classic heinlein story like all you zombies but you can also read uh 
Annalie Newitz is the future of another timeline and pick up most of what you need to know to understand the grammar of time travel. Understanding the grammar of an idea is a interesting thing, but though mostly an academic kind of approach to looking at things. It is, it is. And arguably, apart from a kind of desperate neediness when it comes to wanting to remain relevant in the world, which underpins a lot of the discussion in this space, um, I do wonder whether we're way overthinking it, over-talking it, because does somebody picking up Anna Lee Newitz's novel, do they need to be literate in the idea of time travel? No, they don't. There's what? everything in that book you could possibly need. There's nothing... That, I mean, there, there's a lot that's very meritorious about the book, so that's not what I'm saying when I say this, but there's nothing conceptually that's so alien to, to someone who is living in the 21st century that they need any kind of currency or context. In fact, you could argue that for the vast majority of science fiction, additional context is largely superfluous. Couldn't you? That's, that's another way of, of, of making the point I'm making. In other words, sure. you want to... Uh, you, you want to appreciate the idea of, of time travel. That's a whole, there are hundreds, if not thousands of stories. I'm sure there are thousands of stories and novels that deal with permutations of time travel. Uh, if you move into fantasy, it's the same way. You can, you can deal, with the, deal with the devil stories or dragon stories, as you've uh, just demonstrated in your anthology. Any one story in that anthology will will open up the world of dragons to you in a way that future stories build on. In other words, my point is that any entry point is a good enough entry point if it's a book you enjoy. I agree. I'm, I'm reluctant to say what I'm about to say because I don't want to terminate the rhythm of, some, of the conversation, but I'm going to float this. After uh -huh. 500 episodes, right, is there anything left to say about canon other than Honestly, it's not a particularly relevant idea that the most relevant idea first is if you want a recommendation about a book to read, I've read some good ones, you might like this one. And if you want to be a student of, of science fiction, an actual academic student will then approach it in that way. I think that's true. I mean, canon is a is a use if, if, if you teach science fiction like I've done and like a lot of our colleagues do, then choosing what to teach uh, to introduce people to the idea of science fiction is kind of important, although I don't think there are very many science fiction professors who uh, will, these days, will put together a, 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 a syllabus that consists of nothing but Vernon Wells and Heinlein and Asimov. I think that uh, that idea of the canon is, is, is kind of ancient. Um, but I, I, I do go back to the question that comes up again and again, what ought I to read? And what ought I to read is not a question of what is in the canon, what is good for me. It's a question of what do you think I'd like, um, which, which, is, which is very more, or much more informal. I mean, this is a, we've said this before. When somebody asks me, when some non-science fiction reader says, where should I start? I have to have a conversation with them and find out, do you like puzzle stories? If you like, if you like classical detective stories, maybe you will like Asimov. Maybe you do well, like rational plots. Yeah, and, and probably the... the Maybe the, the 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 way I'd put it as well when it comes to responding in that space is maybe thinking about density, right? Mm -hmm. What level of density of conception in science fictional terms do you want to expose a new reader to initially? Uh, I've just completed reading 
A Memory Called Peace, the Hugo Award winner by Arcadia Martin, mm-hmm. and its follow-up, A Desolation, sorry, A Memory Called Empire, and A Desolation Called Peace, Desolation. which is coming out next March, has been delayed till next March, which are fabulous books, and I love them. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would necessarily say, if you've never read science fiction, that they might be a place to start. They're not super conceptually dense, but they're not mm. immediately accessible. Similarly, I would be cautious about exposing some or recommending some of Greg Egan's oeuvre to a first-time mm. science fiction reader, even though there is work that they'd be perfectly accessible. And it would also depend on their interest, as you say. I mean, if you have someone who is a mathematics student or a mm-hmm. physics student, then lobbing straight into Greg Egan's perfectly fine. Um, well, but I'll if not, then not. There, there, there certainly is entry-level Greg Egan. The other name that came up, um, what I was thinking was soon you mentioned uh, Greg Egan were um, Hanu Rayanyemi's first couple of novels, The Quantum Thief, uh, for example. And, and, and one of the things that I can see writers doing um, in, in, in the case of Rayanyemi is is, is kind of anchoring their more bizarre, uh, this kind of nanotech society, this uh, uh, information-drenched society, which is very alienating, nothing is explained at all, but anchoring that in a kind of classic detective story about a, a, a thief and a boy detective, um, which, which is a technique that is age-old in science fiction. <clears throat> but if somebody has never read any science fiction, even if they've read boy detective stories before, I'm not sure I'd start them off with a quantum thief. Uh, the question is, where where do you start? I mean, th- there are science fiction works that unapologetically, and they shouldn't be apologetic about it, build on earlier science fiction concepts and that are fairly, fairly dense. Uh, there, are, there are writers that um, uh, tend not to offer any kind of info dumps, any kind of background information. You're just in, a, in an alien world, and you might as well be reading it as one reader said to me once, as though it were a fantasy novel. Um, I'm not sure that I'm going to buy anymore the idea that things are dense because they refer to previous things and have a context. I think the works that are difficult are the ones that are internally uh, dense mm. or complex. Uh, a book like, I don't know, Old Man's War by uh, John Scalzi, Mm. absolutely references a tradition in science fiction, uh, earlier works, da-da-da-da, which you have no need of any reference to whatsoever. No, not at all. Dahlgren is a conceptually dense book that's just going to take you time to work your way through, and either you're a reader who responds to that or you don't, and no amount of preparation is going to help you. That would be equally true if Dahlgren had no speculative science fiction elements <laughs> in it at all. I mean, it's... Okay, fair enough. And, and you know, honestly, I, I, and this is something I'm sure that the you know, writers would say themselves, any work that references another work or was inspired by, you know, uh, by another work, uh, if it's of any quality at all, you don't need to know the other work. Um. You don't need to know the other work, but the question is, how enriched are you by knowing the other work? In other words, how much uh, uh, do, do you gain from a, a book which is deliberately referencing earlier books? Um, and it's, it's not necessarily uh, that books reference only other science fiction books. If you read, uh, I don't know, there are um, 
another conceptually dense set of novels, which I think are uh, excellent and need to be sort of uh, called to people's attention every once in a while, Kathleen Goon's uh, trilogy, trilogy, which began, well, actually four of them now, uh, which began, the Queen, the Queen City Jazz. Uh, it's, it's, again, a very bizarre, alienating world, and, and yet you can figure out what's going on in it. You can certainly figure it out by referring to earlier science fiction. But there are also allusions to everything from Mark Twain to F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, so, so you're right. The elusiveness of a novel, uh, if you understand the allusions, adds to the richness of a novel. Most novelists that I know will uh, be a little surprised if every reader gets every allusion. Sure. Oh, I um, wouldn't expect it. And that, I mean, that's what rereading's for, if the book's any good. Yeah, exactly. But let me put something else to you, right, that occurs to me. Looking back over 500 or so episodes of the Cood Street podcast, uh, 30 years of reading and bouncing off other people in the science fiction field or longer, this is my question for you, Gary. How crippled do you think science fiction discussion has been by the deeply embedded sense of insecurity that readers and writers have about their field that they inherited from the 30s and 40s. That the reason that we have so many awards isn't because we've got so much to award, but because we want to try and make a case for the importance and relevance of our work because we didn't think people were paying attention. And the reason we have all this discussion about canon is exactly the same. It's got nothing to do with canon or uh, acad academia or anything else and everything to do with attempting to seize some form of legitimacy uh, and claim it by saying, well, we have canonical works and award-worthy works. So, of course, we're good because we're insecure right up to this very minute. I think there's a lot to be said for that. I was watching, uh, just before we chatted tonight, I was watching a uh, classic movie. I guess it's now a classic called The Birdcage, which was the American version of La Caja Fall, which, which deals with trying to uh, impress a very conservative uh, set of prospective in-laws with your family, despite that your fact that your family is, uh, your, your parents are a gay couple who own a drag club in, in, in South Beach. So what you're talking about, in a sense, is the idea that we're, we're, we're trying to impress our prospective in-laws, and we invite them to dinner, and the crazy uncles at the table have to be accounted for somewhere, because you can't really say, go away, don't pay any attention to it. This is not a new thing, obviously. Uh, early science fiction anthologies, and this goes back a little bit into academia, um, there's a classic anthology by August Derleth called uh, Beyond Time and Space. And it's got Rabier in it, it's got uh, Plato in it, it's got Sir Thomas More, it's got, it's, and it's, you can see it, it's just a search for a usable past. It's a search for, let's, let's prove that science fiction is legitimate because it, it's obvious, it's obvious to, to, to everybody who, who looks at this, that there must be a direct line uh, from Cyrano de Bergerac to David H. Keller, M.D. Um, and, and so, yeah, science fiction has done that. Histories of science fiction have done that. Anthologies have done it. Um, it, it still goes on. It's an embarrassed, we're embarrassed by our ancestors. Um, I, think we're, I think many of us are embarrassed by our present. Well... We don't want to admit it, but that yearning for legitimacy. When I, when I listen to, particularly, it seems to me in some ways, our British friends who voice it more clearly, the, the yearning for, for Booker nominations because they didn't have that, 
or because you know it didn't get re- reviewed in the mainstream papers but now that they do well that doesn't count because it's something else so that's was isn't legitimate enough and so on and so on and so on you know that seems to be the thing and it's like we have there's, there's like this cultural insecurity within science fiction the science fiction readership and more specifically fandom i think that says no matter how much we achieve or people achieve the level of legitimacy that we thought we wanted, uh, it's never going to be legitimate enough. I think there is that sense, and I think you may be right that that sense is uh, is a little different in every country. I mean, the, the United States, uh, it's, 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 it's an awareness of that pulp tradition. And the, the awareness of the pulp, the slight feeling of embarrassment about Pulp Fiction, which has always been there, but mostly it had been based on the fact that most Pulp Fiction, by which I mean stories that actually appeared in the pulp magazines in the 1930s, most of it was awful. Uh, hmm. and, and, and now we're finding out that even the stuff that wasn't awful uh, on the surface tended to be by people who were awful, like Lovecraft or, or, <laughs> or, or was awful just uh, was awful on retrospect. Yes, yes. I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but but the difference is so, so that's always been part of the American experience of science fiction. I was uh, emailing back and forth with some, uh, well, actually with uh, uh, a friend who we've done a, who's been on the podcast, Nina Allen, and she was talking to a friend of hers who thought that it was interesting how science fiction began to change as it separated from the mainstream back in the 1960s. And I thought that's an odd perspective that science fiction separated from the mainstream in the 60s because in the 60s from my perspective as an American, is when science fiction thought, we're finally going to get into the mainstream. You know, we're going to nominate Thomas Pynchon for a Nebula Award, where uh, Kurt Vonnegut is, is okay now. He's a bestseller. But from a British perspective, you know, not growing up with that pulp tradition, the 30s in terms of British science fiction was Stapledon, was uh, was, was was the late Wells, was, um, yeah, and, and, you know, and Wyndham and that sort of thing. So, so yeah, the idea that uh, uh, science fiction had a kind of uh, noble lineage. I mean, H.G. Wells was a major cultural figure, a major world cultural figure, a major intellectual in England his entire life. He, he himself was a little bit embarrassed late in life by what he called his early romances. But, but by and large, that sense that science fiction was part of literature and kind of calved off from it at some point when more British writers began looking, trying to look like American writers, I suspect, or trying to sell to American magazines, um, it's a completely different way. I don't know what it looks like in Australia. I mean, it occurs to me Australia could be a mix of the United States and Britain. I don't know that it, there's enough of a tradition for it to have that kind of perspective. By mm-hmm. which I mean, you know, before the 1950s, there's very little of anything that can be identified really usefully as science fiction. Yeah. And okay. then through the 50s and 60s and 70s, it's peripheral and there's a very very small amount of it. Um, and when there is a flourishing, it's very commercial and influenced by outside the country. And mm-hmm. it does have both... both <clears throat> from what, yeah, when I look back, an almost equal balance of that sort of British literary new wave influence and American pulp influence coming in equally at the same time. At the same time, yeah, that would yeah. make sense. Yeah, you know, so 
I don't think it, it breaks the question down super usefully. I am interested that perhaps the reason contemporary British writers that I talk to at times do, particularly older ones, do yearn for mainstream credibility is because mm-hmm. there's that feeling of a lost Albion where, where they had it before and they don't have it now. I guess that's possible. Um, whereas, I mean, in terms of American science fiction, everybody on you know, on balance is, is kind of bemused because it's the mainstream of popular culture now. And what were you hoping for? Yeah, it's 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 not um, it's 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 not as though science fiction has has made it. I mean, the, the argument has is frequently made uh, by by successful writers. Uh, and there are a lot of successful science fiction writers who make more money than mainstream novelists do. Uh, and we could probably list them and they would probably could even more enthusiastically list themselves. Um, <laughs> but I still notice I've started reading. I, I didn't used to do it on a regular basis, but I got a, an offer to read publishers weekly for free every week. Mm-hmm. I started noticing something and I know PW has always done this, but it's it's kind of the standard review source, advanced review source, uh, at least here in the States. Um, and getting a starred review is something everybody boasts about. I look under the review, I look in reviews every week now, I look under general fiction, there are always one or two science fiction or fantasy novels that are reviewed under general fiction. And the others are sort of shoved into the closet in the back, science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And it occurred to me, there is a kind of uh, sort of culling going on. Somebody at PW is deciding that these works, even though they have science fiction and fantasy elements in them, let's say Station Eleven, um, are not going to be reviewed as science fiction, fantasy, and horror. In other words, is that just? But does that map to whether the book comes from a science fiction imprint or not? I suspect it does. I suspect it's a way of kind of enforcing um, enforcing genre barriers by mode of publication. Uh, by by who the publisher is, by uh, how the book is marketed, and so forth and so on. Uh, I, I can't imagine um, that um, uh, that right, I, I mentioned Station Eleven, for example. There's a novel coming out in November uh, by uh, V. E. Schwab, the uh, the, for, the 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 life, the invisible life of Addie Larue, which is about. Uh, it, 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 it's not a terribly uh, original idea. Somebody uh, makes a deal, essentially a deal with the devil for immortality, and the cost is that they're uh, going to be forgotten by everybody who meets them. Um, and that's uh, an idea. It's a kind of combination of other ideas that have been around in genre fiction for a long time. The idea of a character who is uh, not memorable to anybody else was showed up in the Zero series that Scott Westerfeld and, and Debbie and Cotty and Margot Lanigan did. But this is clearly being uh, set up as, as a bestseller. The, the, the fantasy element in it is disregarded because it's not going to be showing up in the science fiction, fantasy, and horror section of PW. So people making those decisions, uh, people on the New York Times deciding that, uh, I believe Amal Motar is still doing her column from the New York Times, but somebody must be, this happened to me at the, when I, at the Tribune as well. Uh, somebody says, well, you can deal with these books, but this book we're going to have a mainstream review on. So to some extent, the, 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 the venues of review and the, and the publicity venues 
uh, tend to reinforce that uh, that idea that something is formulaic, something the market, the readership. I don't know how that definition is made or how those decisions are made. Or, or maybe a broader interest. Maybe that's it. Uh, it would be interesting for me um, since uh, one of the most important books in our field coming out this fall will be um, Kim Stanley Robinson's um, Ministry of the Future as to what would happen if, let's say, Stand on Zanzibar were published today. Because when Stand on Zanzibar appeared, it was clearly a science fiction novel, and only later more or less became kind of a classic of, uh, well, ecological fiction. Uh, the, 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 so, uh, Dune, would that be published only as science fiction today, or would they manage to push that into the mainstream market? I think... Mm. See, it's very difficult to pull that out and answer that question because, of course, Dune is the thing of its time. It's a 1965 book. It is. It is. And, it, you know, uh, and, and you, you have to imagine a world where science fiction has not been influenced by Dune, maybe by something else that came along well, in its place, yeah. and that all those sort of things. Um, I think Dune would probably be published straight into the genre press and then straight would... and, and would be reviewed in genre columns and those sort of things and not seen it beyond it. Um, I think it is the kind of text that is more deeply in dialogue with the field for, for to, not to overly mm. uh, contradict my earlier <laughs> points uh, than maybe the Ministry for the Future, which feels like it's more in dialogue with the world around it. Well, it goes back to the point we were making earlier, and that is what kind of what kind of grammar do you need to understand these books? Dune is one of the pioneering books, I would argue, maybe one of the two or three pioneering science fiction novels in the area of what we now call world building. I don't think that Frank Herbert or his contemporaries probably ever even used that term. Uh, and yet the idea of developing the entire ecology of a planet figuring out what kind of societies would evolve in that, figuring out all kinds of, and, and having all this sort of pseudo-medieval um, intergalactic uh, uh, warfare and, and, and court intrigue and that sort of thing on top of it. Um, that sort of thing uh, really depends on you knowing a, a, a good deal about how science fiction works and a good deal about how um, uh, science fiction relates to fantasy. Uh, for, for example, I mean, one of the things that uh, occurs to me is fascinating is that, talking about genre confusion, Dune still has shown up uh, recently, and I think it happened on one locust list, as one of the classic works of fantasy. Uh, there are chunks of readers who, who see it that way. So they've learned the grammar of that sort of thing. And in other words, to go back to your point about how it would be published today, yes, so much of that novel depends on knowing something about how science fiction and fantasy work, how world building works, you know, how how uh, imaginary politics works, and so forth and so on. Um, it's it's interesting. As a matter of fact, uh, just one more point about Dune. It's almost been retrofitted as an ecological novel because outside of the fact of imagining a sand planet and the fact that he started writing the novel because he was researching something about sand dunes in Oregon, it's not a terribly ecologically uh, complicated novel. No, no, it's not. And similarly, I mean, I hear it talked about as a space opera, which always throws me. Yeah, well, I think the later series turns into more of a space opera. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, you get this question. In fact, you get it with the Arcadia Martin book, uh, mm -hmm. Memory Called Empire. I mean, to what extent do you have a space opera when 
it mostly takes place on a planet. I mean, that's that's the Dune question. I mean, Dune has a space opera background, but is is uh, has a planetary foreground for most of its uh, most of its length. Right. So that's kind of. It's it's what I think the I think the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction calls a planetary romance, um, which is a perfectly useful term for something that takes place mostly on another planet. But there's a kind of space opera implied in the background, and it's it's these kinds of things. Something that's set on an alien planet. You learn the planet uh, through induction, the way you would learn a fantasy world. That's what I mean about a kind of grammar. In order to read science fiction, you need to know. How to understand what a planet is, you need to understand what space travel is, you need to understand how it works. And the more you know about science fiction, the more you can appreciate the kind of multiple levels on which a lot sure. of contemporary science fiction works. Okay, let me ask this. Okay. Um, we talked about canon again. And I know, we are I beset know. by. We're, we apologize to everybody for doing that. And we're talking about awards or we not right now but we will because mm. they come around and around and you know hey look fair enough to the person who gave us that three-star review i mean they, those those subjects come around and around for whatever reason and we can't quite <laughs> shake them maybe one day we will but i'm curious to ask you um as we sit at episode 500 with about 130 i guess of the 10 minute ish well episodes out there in the world what are the conversation topics that have come up that have surprised you or which you feel have been left most to come back to. And to kick it off while you think on it, I'll tell you that when I was talking to uh -huh. Simon Ings, right, uh -huh. and to a lesser extent to Adam Roberts, even though it's there, I felt like there is a significant conversation to be had with those people about where they think science fiction is and why. Simon Ings particularly left me with a feeling that he's not convinced science fiction's in a very good place. Mm. But the question is, why? Right. So I'm quite interested to have that. To me, that's a conversation, a, a significant conversation that's sitting there to go back to and have at some point. And is one of the great pleasures uh, oh. of uh, doing the short episodes and this is beyond the obvious ones like wanting to go back and talk to someone because they got they have a major book coming out or something but there are a couple of things like that has anything come up like that for you i sorry, i haven't had any sense of people feeling that uh science fiction was was in a bad place i'm not exactly mm -hmm. sure what that means I, I i think there's a lot of uh sense of science fiction maybe uh sort of looking around for the next thing to some extent. Uh, and the, the, the people I've talked to mostly, mostly among the writers seem to be very comfortable with what, what they're working on. Mm -hmm. And they seem to be, uh, you know, very proud of what their friends are working on, which is, um, a kind of delightful sense of community that you get from these things. Um, and, and, and it may be because I'm thinking of some ideas from, uh, uh, from talking to Chris Priest, for example, that, that there's more of a sense, uh, maybe maybe in England than, than than there is in the states that science fiction may be kind of withdrawing into itself to some extent. Um, that there is uh, not an increasing chance. You mentioned earlier everybody wants to get on a booker list. Maybe the chances of that aren't really increasing at all, um, and maybe to some extent uh, the idea that. Uh, 
nobody nobody writes to be on the Booker list, I don't think. Everybody hopes that what they uh, write will be discovered. And I think there is a sense that that's not going to happen, that the, the people who read for the mainstream awards, the people who read for, quote, unquote, the literary canon, are not going to start paying attention to science fiction any more than they ever have. Um, so to that extent, I think there's a, there, there's a kind of cynicism about the field uh, being received, um, but I don't sense in the same way that the field is, is in a state of crisis in terms of the writing. If anything, I get the opposite sense, that there are so many different uh, varieties of science fiction being written now that, uh, the, 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 that it's, it's in a very healthy state. I take it that's not what you were getting. Well, well it's not that. Uh, because, okay, my feeling on science fiction, which I've repeated, or well, well the, the, the genre generally, mm. science fiction fantasy, right? Horror. Yeah. Is that it's actually in very good health. That, that's my feeling. When I look around, yeah. I am invigorated and excited by a large number of books, a large number of pieces of short fiction, a lot, and from a, a broad variety of writers, not just simply... The, the same um, catalog of people that I've been used to reading over time. Mm, so to yeah. me, that's really, really encouraging. However, although we didn't talk about it, I mean, I spoke to Simon for half an hour in our 10-minute podcast. Uh -huh. And it was just this one thing where it was like, I felt like I left this subject to go back to, that this engaged, committed, fascinating person had this feeling that maybe like science fiction isn't doing all that well, and I, I you know, that maybe it's not not engaging as fully and intellectually and as powerfully as it could with the issues that are surrounding us today. That it is maybe retreating a bit into some fantasy version of things, and this is me super putting words on, yeah, yeah. on you know. Because that's not the conver we, we didn't get to that part of the conversation. We got to the intimation of the conversation to have. And this is what I'm saying. Conversations to go back to. I mean, I know we're going to go back to talk to Kim Stanley Robinson about the Ministry for the Future. And I know we want to go back to talk to Alex Harrow about the Once and Future Witches. Uh -huh. And I know there are other conversations. I get the impression there's a group of conversations to be had with, with Nina Allen, with... Uh, some other people who are around the place who, who well, we could go, go back to. I should probably go back and check in about with Robert Shearman, not the least mm -hmm. because I got, did I tell you I got my copy of his book uh, the other week? I saw it on your Facebook page. The it, world's craziest. It's like they should give that guy the World Fantasy Award just for finishing. <laughs> just for finishing. In fact, special professional should just be Robert Shearman for finishing. And the thing, if it's not oh. up for the collection, I will be horrified. I can't even imagine it. But, you know... There's okay, a conversation there's, 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 to see. Yeah, that's yeah. There, there are amazing accomplishments going on in, in in science fiction and fantasy these days, and and there have been for a long time. I mean, I was thinking, I was talking to somebody about uh, an achievement like just Gene Wolfe's book of the New Sun. That's 30, 40 years old now, uh, and it's still uh, still something that's you know unparalleled. So there's a lot of classic work going on. The idea that science fiction may be withdrawing into itself is a criticism that I think is worth examining a little bit. I mean, the appeal of space opera is that it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't avoid contemporary social or economic or ecological issues. It simply uh, displaces them to some extent. I would argue then that science fiction can do that. I mean, not everything is going to... Um, 
deal with immediate um, crises. Not everything is going to look like Paolo Bacigalupi or Shin Shufan's Waste Tide or, or Stan Robinson's work. But you do have a lot of work that uh, you mentioned, The Once and Future, which is, a fan, uh, which is a fantasy novel that seems to, on the one hand, withdraw into a fantasy world. On the other hand, it's a novel about women's suffrage. It's a novel about politics and power. Uh, I think what science fiction is doing, it may be, you can accuse science fiction, of withdrawing from immediate engagement with immediate issues. Not everything is going to look like a Cory Doctorow novel or a Stan Robinson novel. But I think it deals with the issues beneath those issues. I think it deals with power differentials, with the role of women, with the role of economics, with the role of um, dark forces. And certainly there are lots and lots of dark forces in fantasy and science fiction today that look really familiar to those of us here in the States, even though they may not be mentioned by name. Maybe so. I certainly do wonder if what's happening is that science fiction and fantasy for the last 10 years have been grappling with socio-political issues rather than scientific technological issues and i wonder if that looks like not grappling with issues with science fictional questions because those socio-political issues are what's occupying people you know issues around mm. inclusion which we've talked about a lot before mm. and which has been been critically important uh but may not look as techno engineering as we might be used to I think one of the things that uh, muddies that particular set of waters is that <laughs> it's more and more difficult to separate socio-political issues from technological issues. Well, that's when because you the separation at, was always false. Well, it, it was always an artificial separation uh, to begin with. I mean, the idea that uh, uh, certainly social media is something which you can make an argument that science fiction never really saw that coming. But now that it's here, you can't talk about... Uh, social relationships or, or economics or uh, power differentials without talking about the, the, the technology through which they're expressed. True, true. You can also say that social media itself is an oxymoron. Well, that's true too. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's, I just think it's such an interesting time. Um, and I found, it was interesting. I'd found myself reading more and more fantasy lately and enjoying and uh and being engaged by fantasy novels and crime novels more so actually going back i mean it's interesting to me that i had not read a memory called empire yet and i do re recommend it to you and to readers generally um it's a book i mean did you listen to the conversation i had with arcady martin I, I, listened, I listened to the first part of it yeah and you know in it she talks about how she and Anne Leckie are mischaracterized as having been heavily influenced by Le Guin, mm -hmm. when in fact they're heavily influenced by Cherry, right? C.J. Cherry. Yeah. And certainly you could, I, it's, okay, I could imagine a memory called Empire existing in a world where Foreigner didn't exist, but it really, really is a child of that series universe. It's in, influenced by it quite clearly in a, mm -hmm. In a good way. But what I found for me was Memory Called Empire was a reminder of the vitality, vitality of science fiction right now, as opposed to, you know, which I'd maybe lost a feeling for for a while as, as, a, as a reader. And it goes to show there's just too much to keep track of, which is a cop out to say. But there are mm. too many, you know, too many books. Too many books. Well, that's true. And, and, and I don't, 
uh, think that uh, this comes up every year when you and I have to write our year in review essays for, for Locus. Ugh. And I start thinking, okay, I haven't read this. I haven't read that. I haven't read that. And uh, one of the reasons, just to put in a plug for Locus Magazine or any other review venue, you can't read everything anymore, but you can read reviews about everything so you can get at least the illusion of keeping up with the field. I mean, one of the reasons... For example, I'm sure that uh, that Anne and Lecky and Arcady Martin are compared to Le Guin. Is that the people doing the comparing only know Le Guin? Um, it's well, she, well, she's, well, she's she is a a, bro, a widely known, uh, justifiably a widely known standard of excellence. She's a widely known standard of excellence, but she's also a name that is recognizable by people who don't read a lot of science fiction. If you sure. read mainstream reviews, and again, I'm not talking about uh, Amal's uh, New York Times column or, or, or uh, columns written by people part of the science fiction community. You look at mainstream reviews of modern science fiction novels and they're going to be compared to Le Guin or Dick or possibly Herbert. Um, and that's about it. Uh, because yeah. essentially those are names that are broken out and for whatever reasons, uh, very, very influential writers like, like Cherry, like Bujold, have not broken out into the consciousness of mainstream readers and reviewers. They're still kind of secrets that we in the science fiction community keep to ourselves. It's true. It's true. Well, I mean, just to, to circle around and around and around, to get er mm -hmm. let, let's be early, right? And I mean, I don't have I've no preparation for this, and this is a particularly <laughs> rambly episode of Crude Street, which maybe is That's appropriate. I will say, I kind of feel like we should have focused talking points to get through the, the structure of the hour, but still. What do you actually think, based on what you've read, of 2020, this strange COVID-related shambolic year in publishing everything else, as a year in reading? It strikes me as being a pretty exciting year in reading. I mean, I'm reading uh, – every, every year strikes me as being interesting because I've, I'm looking for a variety of things that I didn't read the year before. And so I'm, I'm finding things all over the map. I mean, one, one book I just recently uh, read and enjoyed tremendously was uh, P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout, mm -hmm. uh, which is a, it's a fantasy. It's another uh, – one way of looking at it, it's, it's, it's another way of sort of reexamining and unpacking Lovecraftian stuff, although at least he doesn't use Lovecraftian terminology in it. Um, and there's a kind of energy to it. And what I'm sensing this year and a lot of the stuff that I'm reading – is just a, a kind of enormous degree of energy. Now, this is stuff that was written before the virus, uh, and maybe we'll see something change uh, as as virus era fiction begins to <laughs> appear probably next year or the year after that. But uh, the, the sense I get from this year so far, uh, and I'm reading into November now, the uh, novel I'm reading now is a November novel. It's the new Jonathan Lethem, in fact. Mm-hmm. But I get a sense that everybody's having a lot of fun this year, ironically enough. I get a sense of, of, of just experimentation and energy and celebration. Well, certainly, I mean, obviously, the, well, not obviously, but obviously, the books that we're reading right now, even if they are to be published in the back half of 2020 or the very early parts of 2021, mm. were written in 2018, 2019. Yeah, That's the nature. Sure. So we won't, see, we won't see the stuff written now for another year and a half or two, mostly, I don't think. Right. But when you look at, stuff i mean <sighs> extraordinary works like toshi onyobuchi's riot baby right. like levi tidhar's by force alone um you know 
debuts like The Vanished Birds, the Simon Jimenez book, um, Stan's book, Alex's right. book, you know, there is such an extraordinary breadth of stuff and always something else just around the corner. You know, I do think we're in for an odd, an odd run into Christmas uh, because, I mean, that's the period we're coming into now. And right. books are being pushed off. I mean, major books will be pushed off into next year to make room for what's happening. And this is what exact, oh, the story of a desolation called Peace, I think. It was a right. September book that is now a March book. And that will flow through into, you know, over, over time. Um, but certainly the first two-thirds of the year have been pretty incredible. I mean, obviously no one could have, you know, accounted for a mad project like we all hear stories in the dark, the Robert Shearman. No. Um, or, but, you know, books like, you know, uh, you know Vagabond, the um, book by Hao Jing Fang, by, yeah. like, like, like C.L. Polk's book, uh, Storm Song, which of course, and of course, Polk has a second novel due out next, in October. I was going to say next month, in October, which looks terrific. And we yeah, have... We- Abercrombie's yeah. Trouble with Peace, which I'm reading at the moment, which is great, and a bunch of other things. Well, you had uh, Susanna Clark's uh, yes. second novel, which uh, I think was, I, th- I think that, that may be a good example of what I mean by experimentation of not, it was not what anybody expected. Uh, it's, it's terrific, but it's not anything like Jonathan Strange and Mr. Uh, Norrell. And, Nor and, has and it even been published yet, Gary. Hmm? Nor has it even been published yet. It's not out yet. I thought it's no. It's, oh, it's a September book. How about that? Okay, never mind. <laughs> okay, so you're, I, I, you're, right. you're looking back from the future again. Well, it's, it's hard to remember what uh, things are coming up. I was talking to uh, uh, someone yesterday about how excited I was about uh, Ring Shout, and I it's a book I read five weeks ago. I mean, I'm, I've completely forgotten that it's not out until October. Uh, but by and large, all this uh, strikes me as being uh, a year which is not governed by a trend, and I like that. I mean, it, the, the, there are some years when it looks like, uh, okay, this is, let's say this is the year of the expanse. Everybody wants to do kinds of neo-space operas with a lot of political sophistication in them. I've seen yeah. years like there are years that say, or, or, or to go back further, years that are Ian Banks-derived years. There are years that seem to be very energetic about alternate histories and that sort of thing. This year seems all over the map, and that's one of the things I like about it. Yeah, I think if if you're actually reading rather than talking about science fiction, I think it is very exciting. Uh, And there is a lot of stuff, and there are great anthologies out there as well. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, Sheila Williams uh, had had an anthology out that came in, you know, from the, I think it was from the X-Prize people maybe, I think it was, she's one of those. Or, uh, or was it a future tense one? And I know that and Vandermeer had a really good one out, and there's a bunch mm-hmm. of other things around. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And then there's all the novellas and blah, 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 blah. I'm not looking forward to doing your review, Gary, because there's just too much to cover. It's not, and, there's too much to cover. And, there, and again, it's one of those things where you're supposed to draw generalizations, and uh, it, it, it's, it's less and less a field that you can draw generalizations about. Possibly so. And, I mean, I also think, you know, like I need, to, I mean, this is really blathery, this part of this, because we didn't prep for it, obviously. Mm. But I want to think about, I want to think about this sort of, what's the best science fiction novel that I've read this year, right? 
And uh-huh. I'm not sh- I mean, okay, I've got one obvious answer, right, which is Stan Robinson's A Ministry for the Future. Right. But, I mean, there's been a lot of other interesting books, you know, um, and, and actually, in some ways, from my, from the year I've observed, I feel like it's almost a better year for fantasy. It's, there's been some great fantasy books come out. Genuinely great. And, and, and kind of pushing the, the boundary kind of uh, fantasy novels. I think that's true. But I think also that uh, I'm, I'm looking back now. It's, it's interesting to remember that the year began with a new William Gibson novel. Yes, doesn't that feel a hundred thousand years ago? It feels like that, that, that's why I'm looking back and thinking, oh, I, didn't I read that five years ago? No, it was about uh, less than a year ago. Um, the, the, there was a the, the Nora Jemison novel was different from anything she'd written. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I mean about people going off in different directions. There was a um, Joe Walton meant, novel. The Joe Walton novel. There was a Paul McCauley novel, which is still not being published in the states, unfortunately. Uh, the James Bradley novel was terrific. Uh, none of these things um, seem to be fitting any pattern at all, which I think is fine. One of my favorite novels of the year and probably of the last couple of years to get back to fantasy was Lavi Tidar's By Force Alone, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, which is just uh, outrageous and uh, in, 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 all, in all the best ways. Maybe what we need to do is we need to go off, Gary, in between podcasts and maybe start prepping our listeners for, for, for not well. Okay, with 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 a recommended reading list of things just to look at from twenty twenty, which would uh-huh. serve to help prep them for reading for next year's awards. Though that wouldn't be its core purpose. Um, I don't want to tell people what the yeah the the, the thing that uh, every, every year on awards ballots there are titles I've never heard of, especially in the shorter fiction categories, hmm. which you know much much better than I do. Um, and then I'll go back, and if I have them, I'll, I'll, I'll read them. Um, but I have the same sense there, and one of the things that uh, I'm enjoying, to be honest, I just started reading Your Year's Best, and one mm-hmm. of the things I'm enjoying about it is that no story looks anything like the story that follows it or precedes it. Um, and I, don't, I, th- I, I think really that's don't a good thing. It. <laughs> it's, it's meant to be a good thing, yes. <laughs> I hope it's a good thing. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> But to get back world. to the question, the question we started with was, you know, uh, was, was not really canon, but what do you need to know to read modern science fiction? And my, uh, to, I can I can plug your years best because it's the one I have now and it's very good. But I can plug your uh, Rich, Rich Hortons or, uh, or or Clark's. Any good anthology of science fiction will give you a grounding in what you need. In other words, if you read. Um, well, I, I'm picking out a year's best anthology, but you could you could read any classic anthology of science fiction, and it would be a primer in what you need to understand to read most contemporary science fiction. I, I guess. I mean, part of me is tempted to say, and it's very glib and unhelpful, that if, if you're someone who genuinely doesn't read science fiction and looking for somewhere to start, they should just start. Just pick something popular and start there. Well, I know people who uh, would do that. They would figure out, okay, I'm going to read science fiction, so I'll go to the local bookstore if there is one anymore and pick the best of the year off the shelf and huh. and frequently what happens in, is that you might be getting a best of the year from two or three years ago because those things sometimes show up on the shelf sure sure really doesn't make any difference no no uh-huh. but well I, the, the, okay the point, the point With, within some kind of reason i mean if you pick up the year's best science fiction volume one 
by Gardner Dozois, which comes from 1984, but it's still around. That's yeah. not going to give you the same kind of answer as the year's best science fiction that I've just put out or the best science fiction of the year that Neil Clark's just put out. I would, I would argue that it would give you much of the same background that you need. Um, it might be if you go all the way back to Judith Merrill in 1955, where people no. were still kind of in the process of inventing the field, it might look like a completely different field. But I think that in terms of what I'm talking about, of learning the grammar of the beats of reading science fiction, this, these are the things that science fiction does. I think you could have, I think if you had picked up, let me put it this way, if you had picked up Gardner's uh, anthology from 1984 and read it through and then read, let's say, your anthology from this year, you'd feel right at home. You'd see that there's a little bit more experimentation going on, maybe uh, different kinds of experimentation, maybe a little bit more humor in science fiction these days than there used to be. Um, but I think that by and large, any book you pick up that has a variety of stories in it, that's not a, uh, a book with an agenda. Yeah. In other words, if you pick up, let's say the year's best military science fiction, you're going to get a fairly narrow view. But if you pick up a general year's best, the chances are you'll come out of it equipped to read almost any science fiction novel published during that year. See, I'm fascinated that we've stumbled to this particular question, this question of, like, if you picked up the year's best science fiction first annual collection published mm. by Blue Jay Books in April of 84, actually it was, with uh -huh. a Tom Kidd cover on it, and you compared it with the year's best science fiction volume one published by Saga that I edited, would you recognize them? Would they equip you for the same thing? I'm not sure they do. Really? I'm not sure they do at all. You're, prob I you're think probably looking at the contents of the I'm of looking at the contents, Gary, and i got to tell you, I look at uh, that book and like I know every story in this book pretty damn well. In Gardner's book? Your book. Yes. Off the top of my head, just looking down them, right? Oh, geez. And of, yeah, absolutely, I do. 100%. It's one of my favorite anthologies ever. Uh, <laughs> I remember picking it up. And I look down the list, and it has more of its feet in the past, as you think it would be. I mean, let's be oh, fair yeah. to this book. It's publishing, it's collecting stories that are 37 years old. Yeah. Right? And in terms of, I mean, half the people who are in this, well, that's, not, that's an exaggeration. A, a number of the people who are writing in this book are either retired or deceased. Mm. Right. Um, it features news news stories, Gary, by Tiptree, by by uh, Paul Anderson, by R. A. Lafferty, by um, Tanith Lee, by Lee Kennedy, by Gene Wolfe. None of whom are with us in writing anymore, and nobody's writing anything like full you know, full chicken richness by Avram Davidson, you know, no. or uh, uh, you know. Nunc Dimittis by Tanith Lee. So, you know, when I look at it, because this is, I mean, this is what you get. You, you've, you've got a a year's best that opens with the world's longest introduction because Gardner was contractually uh, what? You know, bound to provide the world's longest introduction, which I think became a burden over time. Then I you have a Shaper that. Mechanist story by Bruce Sterling, a Quintana Roo story by James Tiptree, a story, uh, a Slow Birds by Ian Watson, Mm -hmm. um, which had been around, I think, for a while. There's a Howard Waldrop story that follows. There's a long, hard SF novella, very, very good one that people don't talk about often enough, by Greg Bear called Hard Fought. There's a Joe Haldeman story, mm -hmm. an Avram David story, Bob Silverberg. 
It's a different world, Gar. It's a, it's different a very world. different world. The, the number of those writers who are still relevant today, who are still dis- discussed by, by younger writers and readers. I mean, uh, certainly Tiptree and Waldrop and, 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 and Lafferty and, um, and the, the, these are names that, you're, you're right, maybe may that not as many people read Avram Davidson as, as, as ought to. But by and large, if you look at the fiction themselves it, itself, I think that that fiction is uh, maps probably reasonably comfortably onto the, uh, the contents of your anthology just out this fall. Maybe so. I mean, I will say, I pine for what you. Yes, I know. My book is probably more uh, international focused. This book probably, is exclusively features writers who are either from the UK or the US. Right. And, and I haven't done a, a in, in gender breakdown, but they're primarily white guys. Pro- pro- probably white guys, and that's uh, that 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 reflects the eighties as well. Hmm. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, just the authors so much as what the stories are about. And I think that in large measure, they're about some of the same things that stories are about today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, to some extent, if you look at any fiction from the 80s, it's going to seem weirdly uh, out of sync with, with today. Not every story is going to be a kind of classic story that lasts forever. But um, I, I, I'm not at all sure that, uh, that that obviates my argument, which is that well, if maybe you had if you, had, if, you, if you were to read Gardner's book, if you've never read any science fiction before at all, and you pick up a copy of Gardner's book from Blue Jay and read it through, and then you pick up your first edition of the year's best from Saga, I think you'd feel like, okay, there's some adjustments. I think you'd probably feel there's some healthier developments. There's more diversity. There are more women. There are more non-Anglo-American uh, uh, titles in it. But essentially, I don't think you'd find that there are radically different sets of ideas or concerns. Science fiction has always been concerned with issues of, um, of, of power, of justice, of yeah. you know, what, whatever the kind of classic themes are. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I mean, apart from the fact that I happen to dedicate the year's best science fiction volume one to Gardner, I've, this mm-hmm. makes me feel very nostalgic. I mean, there are stories here that mean Cicada Queen, which is the, the Sterling story. The closing story in the book is Black Air by Stan Robinson, Carrying Comforts mm-hmm. in there. You know, uh, The Cat, which is a great Gene Wolfe story. Just some brilliant stuff. Great period, the 80s. Anyway, we should wind up. It's over an hour. Over an hour, oh, Gary, great. which is far more Cood Street than anybody needs or wants, I'm sure. But hey, we've done 500 of these things. We're not done yet. Hey, we'll probably do another 100 by Christmas the way we're going. The way we're going, if we count the short ones, and we're counting the short ones because I'm finding them a lot of fun, and I hope you are too. Yes, and we keep saying we're going to get onto planning some of the longer ones, and we will. But for now, I guess this has been, as it always been, this thing that we do. This has been the Group Street Podcast. Until next time.